Our topic is still the cosmic conflict and the future uh, of America in a sort of a, as a sort of sub subtext here and and a, a, a touchy subject it is. So we can't say too much uh, too much on such a difficult subject. Uh, I think the topic today is a topic that <coughs> that is uh, on our on our agenda more because of my need to talk about it than because of your need to hear it. Because uh, I, I have <coughs> wanted an opportunity to talk about it, and this is the only chance I have. So, <laughs> so I just, I, I hope you will, <coughs> you will forgive me if you do not find it to be uh, relevant. Uh, we have reached now on these four, four uh, uh, subtopics. We have reached the fourth one. Uh, so we have talked about reacceptance of the church estate. And we have talked about reacceptance of extreme economic inequities as a feature of of uh, of our time. In some ways, uh, we did talk at some length about reacceptance of unaccountable authority. And in my view, there is a connection between number three and number four. Uh, a connection between uh, unaccountable authority and reacceptance of the mother. The source I am using, to uh, at least to some extent, for this topic, I have recommended this book before. I will recommend it again. Peter Nichols' book, The Pope's Divisions. Uh, uh, I am indebted to uh, the late Paul Landa from La Sierra University, who, from whom I took a course in, in times past on... Uh, on uh, church history, or even, I think, the Roman Catholic Church. And this was one of the assigned books. And I really enjoyed this book. I, I, I think it's one of the most illuminating books on the topic. Uh, Peter Nichols was a journalist, or he's probably still alive, uh, even though this book came out, came out quite early uh, during the pontificate of John Paul II. Uh, Peter Nichols was a uh, was the, the repre represented the London Times at the Vatican for more than twenty five years, and there is a chapter here in this book called "The Road to Fatima." I almost copied it to to give it to you, uh, but there are copyright you know laws, and we are law abiding citizens, uh, so I don't I didn't do that. I was thinking I could maybe I could have could have copied it and attached it to a, an email or something, but that's probably not legal either. So I'll write it here. Because I, I really, it would have been very meaningful for if more of you had read that chapter to see see what you think about his, his point. Because Peter Nichols is the, is the name of the author, and the title of the book is The Pope's Divisions. Now, what's the point of the title? The point of the title is that Stalin once said, Stalin at the time when, when communism seemed to have in some ways the upper hand vis-a-vis uh, -vis the church, uh, Stalin said, how many divisions has the Pope? That's the reason, that's the allusion you're hearing here. How many divisions has the Pope? Meaning, you know, he doesn't have much military coercive power, and Stalin has many divisions. So does the Pope. 
That's the point of, of, of uh, Peter Nichols' book. It, I think it's an extremely intelligent book, and his chapter, The Road to Fatima, which we will touch on a little here. Uh, it's not just a comment on, phenomen in, on, on a certain phenomenon within the Roman Catholic Church. It is actually quite a broad take on, on uh, contemporary religious and now I'm going to use a very bad word, a difficult word, contemporary religious phenomenology. You know, religion, ways of religious expression in our time. You know, the way, the way people express themselves in, in, in religion. And I think his, his take on that chapter has a number of surprises and quite... Uh, quite challenging to us, and I will I will bring those things up. We will do it. We will do this topic uh, today and next time. Then then that's over, and we will start uh, on a new series. And uh, <clears throat> I asked for input from the class which topic you wanted, and the winner is <laughs> <clears throat> the winner is to do a series on the Sabbath, which is not I'm, I'm not unhappy about. That's fine with me. <laughs> So we will do a series on the lost meaning, uh, on the lost meanings of the Sabbath. You might say that will be loosely connected to my book, and within that series, for those of you who would have rather done the Gospel of John or apocalyptic perspectives in Paul, we will we will find ways to accommodate. You cannot do good Sabbath readings if you do not uh, in Paul. You cannot do much uh, quality work on the Sabbath in Paul unless you get, you know, man, you, you master the cosmic conflict and the apocalyptic uh, texture to Paul. So we will have some, some, uh, some things there too for those of you who, <coughs> you know, I, I felt sorry there. But <laughs> so that's what, we <coughs> that's what we will be doing. So here we go then on the topic, re-acceptance of the mother. And I would, I'd like to cover three points. First, the question of infallibility, accountability, and the mother. That is one, one uh, facet of it. And then the notion of the mother as the one between. And then into our contemporary scene, re-acceptance of the mother. So... <clears throat> This might seem very esoteric for this audience, most of you who are diehard Protestants, uh, but it's good to do a little bit of, of, of fact-finding and see other ways of looking at, at religion, other religious paradigms. And uh, here I will be reading that we will be reading from uh, the, the uh, statement in 1854, when Pope Pius IX, who fought modernity, Pius IX is one of the most influential popes in the, in, in the Roman Catholic Church and the longest serving of all the popes. And Pius IX, he, made, he spoke uh, ex cathedra. He spoke from the teaching chair of the church in 1854. How many times has the, has the Pope spoken ex cathedra the last 200 years? 
How many times has the Pope spoken ex cathedra? When the Pope, you see, when the, when, uh, when the Roman Catholic Church proclaimed the dogma of papal infallibility in 1870, the dogma of, 18, of papal infallibility in 1870 was not proclaimed by the Pope. It was proclaimed by the Church, by the, by, by, uh, the First Vatican Council. So, uh, but the... First Vatican Council says that the church that the, that the pope is only infallible when he speaks ex cathedra. Now there is a kind of spillover effect to make to give a sort of aura of being infallible in more than in more than in more areas than just you know when you speak ex cathedra. But the Roman Catholic I, I spelled it wrong here cathedra. So. From the catheter, from the teaching, from the teaching chair. That's what this means. Ex cathedra from, and from the catheter, like here. You know, I could be speaking to you ex cathedra, you know, but nobody would believe me. So, there's <laughs> no, no, nothing gained by trying that. <laughs> so, so again, my question. Uh, so, uh, or, or let's put this in perspective. The Roman Catholic Church claims infallibility for the Pope only when the Pope speaks ex cathedra. That is very basic. If you didn't know that, it was about time we got, we, we got that corrected. Because, because one really needs to know that the Roman Catholic Church does not claim to be infallible, just sort of across the board. How many times has the Pope spoken ex cathedra during the past 200 years? A papal encyclical is not ex cathedra. There is no claim of infallibility from, from papal encyclicals. There are many of those, many papal encyclicals. Now, again, the papal encyclicals borrow luster from, from you know, the ex cathedra notion. So there is, there is still, you know, they, they, they carry a lot of weight. The papal encyclicals are are not, you know, just, uh, just sort of, uh, you know, the, like a throwaway ad <laughs> that you get in your mail. It is, it is significant. But they are, not, it's, they are not circumscribed with the sort of, you know, packing the kind of punch that ex-cathedra statements have. How many times has this Pope spoken ex-cathedra the past 200 years? Only twice. Only twice. In 1854, uh, 1854, and that's what we will be reading here, and in 1950. This was Pius the Ninth, and this will be Pius the Twelfth in, in, in 1950. So only twice has the Roman Catholic Church put all its prestige on the line, put all the prestige of the teaching office on the line in an ex-cathedra statement. When, you know, this, so this are, these, are, pro, these statements are proclamations of dogma, not proclamations of teachings like, like the encyclicals. And again, it's very fascinating to, to 
be exposed to these statements the way they are composed. And sometimes I wonder in in other churches, including the church to which I belong, whether we are <coughs> sort of, you know, having members of <coughs> the same sort of bureaucracy put these various statements together. There is a a, a, a mouthful of bureaucraties in these statements. <coughs> Listen to 1854 statement. Therefore, having full trust in the Lord that the opportune time had come for defining the immaculate conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, which Holy Scripture, venerable tradition, the constant mind of the Church, the desire of Catholic bishops and the faithful, and the memorable acts and constitutions of our predecessors, you know, the, those and those and those and those, you know, everybody, there is a sort of broad-based uh, backing for this. Wonderfully illustrate and proclaim, we concluded that we should no longer delay in decreeing and defining by our supreme authority the immaculate conception of the Blessed Virgin. I can see some of you falling asleep already because <laughs> this is, you know, quite quite as you know language that isn't quite what we what we uh, read every day life but what's what's the point what is it what is the the project into which the church invests all its authority what was it what is this known as the immaculate conception the immaculate conception the the doctrine or the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. And dogmas in the Roman Catholic way of thinking, they carry, they are obligatory. You cannot be a good Roman Catholic and not believe in the dogmas that the Church has proclaimed. In somewhat lesser, it is not quite analogous, analogous but can you be a good Seventh-day Adventist if you do not if you disagree with any of the fundamental beliefs in Adventism, raise your hand. <laughs> and we have, we have a hidden camera here. <laughs> so you get the idea. You know, there are certain things that the church is kind of insisting, you know, that you should believe. And, and, and if you don't, you know, you are, you are in trouble. There is, there might be the the possibility here that if you don't accept these dogmas, you might your eternal your eternal uh, fate might might be in jeopardy. I'm not quite sure if if the 27 beliefs are are going going out to that length and saying, well, if you don't, you know, believe that you're you're doomed. <laughs> so let's read a little more. Accordingly, <clears throat> by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for the honor of the Holy and Undivided Trinity, for the glory and adornment of the Virgin Mother of God, for the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and for the furtherance of the Catholic religion, by the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord, of the blessed Apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own. All of that, what was on the previous slide and what is on this slide, all of that is just introduction. That was just preamble. Now to the, to the point. We declare, pronounce, and define 
that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, that that is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. <clears throat> so here we have an ex cathedra statement. Let me try to put it in perspective before we, we try to understand it a little more. So, uh, so here we have First, then, the first ex cathedra statement is, the, is on the subject of the Immaculate Conception. And then the second ex cathedra statement, that's Pius XII. What is, what, is he, what is that called? The first one was called the Immaculate Conception. But the second time that the Roman Catholic Church puts all its prestige on the line is also in relation to the Virgin Mary. It's also to, but, so both of these, uh, both of these uh, projects have a, a Marian kind of, of, of uh, agenda. So here is 1950. I, I dropped the preamble here. This is called the bodily assumption of Mary. Bodily assumption. Again, most of these things, you know, pass us by because we don't think, who cares? You know, maybe, well, maybe that's good. Maybe one shouldn't care. Uh, but let's see what they say so we can decide if we, if we care. Wherefore, after we have poured forth prayers and supplications again and again to God, and have invoked the light of the Spirit of truth, for the glory of Almighty God who has lavished his special affection upon the Virgin Mary, for the honor of her Son, the immortal King of the ages, and the victor over sin and death, for the increase of that same August Mother, and for the joy and exaltation of the entire Church, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and it used to be Peter alone, but it has become Peter and Paul in more recent times, and by our own authority, we, I guess that was the preamble, I'm sorry. I thought I had skipped it, but here it is. Now, now to the real thing. We pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma that the <coughs> Immaculate Mother of God the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed, body and soul, into heavenly glory. Now, many of us who, who are not familiar with this journey, we will tend to think, just to put this into perspective, we will tend to think that this view of Mary is something recent within Roman Catholicism. But it isn't. It is as something that has been assumed, has been implicit long before it became a dogma. And <clears throat> you see some of these pictures here, for example, here with Giotto from 1334. This is not a new idea that there is a coronation of Mary uh, in, in heaven. And here from Filippo Lippi, the coronation of the Virgin, 1443, the idea is much older than that. And here you have Raphael and you have Dürer in Germany. Same thing. Quite, quite spectacular uh, uh, pictorial representations of the coronation 
of the Virgin, the assumption, the bodily assumption of the Virgin and her coronation into heaven. When I came, I grew up in, in a small village in, uh, in Norway, in, in a, what you might call a very Protestant uh, type of setting, and more Protestant than the usual because I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist home where, uh, you know, art was not a big thing, <laughs> not much art in our home, <laughs> if I may say so. We were, uh, we were uh, uh, a rather poor family. And, and when I came out in the world, the first times visiting Florence or, or, or Rome, it just blew me away. I had no idea. Because I, I had read in books that there were certain things, there are certain ways of seeing reality, but you go in there and you really, you really understand that there is a lot of stuff that you, that, that you hadn't thought of exactly that way. So you come to Florence, there is a church right across from the train station in Florence, Santa Maria Novella, it's called. It's a, it's a church that goes all the way back to the days of the Black Death. The Black Death was in 1348. And in that church, in that Santa Maria Novella, uh, uh, Boccaccio, Boccaccio, who wrote a book about the Black Death, he wrote a book called The Decameron. And there, was, there are, is a chapter about the Black Death. And they sat in that church right across from the train station during the Black Death, he and some others, you know, just sort of rode out the storm. It's a wonderful depiction of the coronation of the Virgin inside Santa Maria Novella. You go to Rome, there is a huge church there called Santa Maria Maggiore, Santa Maria Major. It's an amazing depiction in the, in the ceiling there of, of the coronation of the Virgin. Quite, quite unforgettable for someone with my background at least. So, <clears throat> so all I'm saying is that these assertions on the level of dogma that come in the 19th and 20th centuries are not bringing new beliefs into the Catholic paradigm. They are just raising, giving, investing those beliefs with more prestige, giving them more, more sort of clout. So now I want to go back to our questions here. Uh, <clears throat> I have two questions. We can do them both at the same time. Uh, the second one is, is the question you raised. Uh, to what extent are these dogmas proof of a connection between infallibility and an accountable authority? That's my first question. Second question, what motivated the Roman Catholic Church to do this in the 19th and 20th centuries? I'd like to, to ask your input, to, I invite your input on on. On those questions, you might just say, "Well, you know, I'm sorry I came here today, you know, because <laughs> this topic doesn't interest me." But uh, <clears throat> now you're here, so <laughs> yes. Did you have a comment? Okay. Anyone wish to to comment on this first on the connection between on on the on the on the prospect that these dogmas uh, have uh, relate to to uh, there is a sort of the uh, the underpinning is the underpinning of an accountable authority. 
Well, I think I think you're you know of course, uh, and I, I think the the analogy analogy there with with the way you know we make laws is 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 valid. That that kind of is how it works here. You know you know so so what is it then? Because there is a in some ways it doesn't matter that it is an ex cathedra statement. In some ways it doesn't matter because it isn't a new belief. So it was there already. It doesn't really matter. That this is the bottom line. This is the end game. There is no going back on this. You know, there is, you really, in some ways, painted yourself into a corner when you have said this is a belief that we hold with infallible authority. The possibility that Mary replaces Jesus. Now, that might be how it works. That, that might be how it has always worked. But if you look at the statements, the statements, the two, the two ex-cathedral statements here, are very careful not to, uh, to eclipse Jesus. The immaculate uh, conception of Mary is, is attributed to by the merits of Jesus. And there is a similar, similar sort of circumscription on the bodily assumption of Mary, that she has not, that her role has not, uh, is not independent of Jesus, the way it is formulated. Now, is that the way it works, you know, in, in terms of everyday belief? But there is a lot of, of careful, careful work uh, here. It reminds me of the work I do. With, I've been uh, sitting in with Dr. Zuccarelli on our uh, graduate, what is it called, our, our group? <laughs> yeah, in the Faculty of Graduate Studies and uh, committees here when we, every word has to be right, you know. <laughs> Isn't that true? <laughs> and these, <coughs> these statements are also, also, um, no, that kind. Well, I, I agree with the statement that was made here, that what is unaccountable about this? Well, it's hard to build a case from scratch for such a view of Mary from the New Testament. It's very, very difficult to do that. You know, there is a kind of, this is, this is whatever, however it came about, it's by inferences that are really stretched, stretched to the limit, maybe beyond the limit. Can you really? Is there anything about in the Bible about how Mary was conceived? The birth of Mary. It's nothing about the birth of Mary, but since Mary is the mother of Jesus, and, you know, so you can say, well, because of that, you can you know, extrapolate backward and make her to be something, you know, like, you know, she was immaculately conceived. What does that mean? How do you do that? Well, there is, there is, a, uh, there is a privileging of her, you know, there is a privileging of her that so they do not go further back than that, you know. And Mary is always virgin, semper virgo, always virgin, nothing. There was no change in the birth canal of Mary after the, she gave birth to Jesus. The, her, there is a sort of, she is still in some ways immaculate forever. You know, she never has relations with Joseph. You cannot do that. You know, in the, from the third century they said, you know, who is to believe that, that, <clears throat> that the male sperm would contaminate the womb? that housed Jesus at, at some point, you know. So there is a lot of, a lot of, of kind of, of vivid imagery going on here 
way back, way back. So it's not, you know, it's not uh, not uh, new exactly. The brothers of Jesus would then be the sons of Joseph in a previous previous uh, relationship. They are not. They are not. Uh, the, uh, you know. We don't really. It, it, it's. It, it could be either way. Is it a fact? Is it attributed to the attributable to the Catholic Church, or is it, you know, um, because of ambiguous evidence? I th- I'd say there is ambiguous evidence too. You know, there you, there are in- inferences you have to make. There are brothers of Jesus in the New Testament. Were they were they the sons of Mary, or weren't they? You know, that's the. There is the James, the brother of Jesus, who is a prominent figure in the early church. Was he an older brother, you know, then the son of someone other than Mary? Or was he, you know, the son of Mary? It's not, that's, we don't know. The point of unaccountable authority, again, is that there is no checks. There is no, there is no, let's just say that someone coming from, uh, from here, you're here for the first time, you have no idea what we're talking about in this class. There is no one from... No, no, there is no resource with which someone who comes to the subject from scratch can run a quality check, sort of do a quality assurance check on, on that belief. You see what I'm saying? You could with the New Testament, you go to the New Testament and lo and behold, you come up with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. That is not easily done. And the church doesn't do it that way. The church says by the how does it say it? It's very, very fascinating how it was said here. Let's just review that. Uh, yes, venerable tradition, the constant mind of the church. That's a very fascinating, uh, you know, it is in the mind of the church that on the basis of that that you can make these, these assertions. So <clears throat> then to our, our second question, what motivated the Roman Catholic Church to do that? Okay, that, that I think is a, is a good argument that, that there is a time here when authority is falling apart. You know, that, that, that absolute authority is out. What is now the new, new, the new paradigm in, in, uh, in the, from the mid-19th century or from the American Revolution? What's the, what's the paradigm of the American Revolution? What, what will... The, what will uh, Will uh, will uh, citizens of the of North America say secular country? Yes. What what else? Freedom. Yes. And what else? Church separation of church and state and governing authority by the consent of the governed. You know, isn't that a major thing that you are not you are not submitting to? Unaccountable authority. You don't believe in unaccountable authority in this country, even though it has been badly eroded, but I'm not going <laughs> to make that. You know, let's not get to go there. Let's stick to our topic here. <laughs> the history of the world until this time had basically been the history of unaccountable authority. That was the name of the game. That was, there was, a, you know, small exceptions to it, like in England. You know, there was a sort of nascent uh, democracy in England. But generally, that was exception. You know, the French Revolution then comes, and and, and before that, the American Revolution. And 
And the American Revolution, with insisting on the consent of the governed, is really, really leading the way for this into this new era. So surely, part of the problem here is that the Roman Catholic Church resists that move. It does not want to concede. It does not want to stoop to say that we only wield accountable authority. This church will not stoop to that. It will insist on wielding unaccountable authority. That is to say, authority from God, not authority that comes from below, that your authority rests on, on, on what, you know, from, from below. You know, so, and, and one can examine our own church and institutional structures and wonder, you know, what, what is it? You know, are we, are we living in a system of accountable authority or not? Okay, I think you're onto something there. I think you're onto something there. If I were to, if I were to, to, to second guess, you know, these, these pronouncements, I would say that the church, you know, there are, there is more than one, one element, you know, more than one calculus here. But I'd say that the church is actually thinking, what is, what is the winning hand? Which, which, you know, which will, which will work? You know, which will be successful? I, I, you know, short term, I think the church was definitely playing, uh, you know, a risk there. It was a risky thing to assert an accountable authority in the late uh, second half of the, of the, of the 19th century. That was, that was not, you know, sort of going with the, with the, with the, with the times. But, Maybe one could make the make the uh, uh, claim or 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 imagine that the church says, "Well, there are pros and there are cons," and and the winning hand is really to to make this assertion that it is really the future belongs. It will be vindicated with time, even in the marketplace, not not by coercive authority, by but by by intrinsic by the intrinsic merit of the of, of, of that of that outlook we need to do a little more uh, sort of fact finding here before uh, to to sustain that argument okay summing it up then we could say well you make an assertion it is against the times because the times want to have authority by consent it's against the project of catholic and protestant you know a rapprochement you know that they will come together because this is one, one uh, sort of one hand in the face of Protestantism because there is no role for the Virgin in the Protestant paradigm. So it's against that. But nevertheless, maybe it is a winning hand to play it like that. That's a possibility. Now, <clears throat> a little bit on theology here and then uh, see what we c- just just to kind of lay the groundwork for, for what we will try to... to uh, complete next time. Uh, the theological aspect of it here, this is a thousand years back and Bernard of Clairvaux says, if you fear the father, go to the son. If you fear the son, go to the mother. And it was mentioned here that there is a, who mentioned that on the fear aspect? You mentioned that. And, and sh- surely that has been a major, major factor in, in uh, the Judeo-Christian paradigm maybe more so in the Christian part of the Judeo 
Christian story than in the Jewish Jewish part. Because in Judaism there is more a there is a leaner monotheism in, in, in Judaism. So there is fear <coughs> in the Bible story. In the going back to Genesis, where God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and human beings in what, what must be one of the saddest, saddest images in the Bible, human beings, they run and they hide from God. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. You know, so what has happened there? What is, you know, the God who comes to human beings after they have eaten of the tree, is that God differently disposed to human beings than he was before they ate from the tree? Is God now a great, a da- does God now pose a danger to humans after they have eaten of the tree? So why are they afraid if God does not pose a danger to them? What is it? It's the, it's the way they see God that has changed, isn't it? God has not changed, but the way you see God has changed. So you see God now as a threat. You are afraid of God. And, of course, that relates to the misrepresentation of the serpent. And we have this statement from Ellen G. White that many of you have been exposed to many times before, how Satan has sought to misrepresent the character of God. And, and that, he, that God, in some ways, has been dressed up with the attributes of the devil. You know, arbitrary, severe, and unforgiving uh, were... Is uh, that statement from Testimonies, uh, Volume 5, page 738. I will not read the whole statement here. And I thought about this. I couldn't resist it. Uh, I, I sent an email to Brad uh, yesterday, yesterday. I was looking for his statement. I just couldn't find it. Uh, and then I, I uh, emailed some others who are in the loop here, and they couldn't find Well, they found it, but they were going to send it to me by snail mail. <laughs> And and snail mail doesn't work in this day and age. <coughs> we want instant results. <laughs> and I I needed it. I found it eventually. It was there. <coughs> this is Graham Maxwell. This is in a statement in a series that some of you may have attended in University Church in 1984. I wasn't here then, but some of you you must have been here and, <coughs> and attended this a series on conversations about God. I remember when I read this statement the first time, some years after that. He, he says here, and, and the one who is love personified had to set up a system of priestly mediation because his people were either too irreverent or too afraid to be his friends. And then he says that he even sent his son to be the one between. When there is really no need for anyone to stand between us and our gracious God. Perhaps Satan's greatest success has been in leading God's children to believe that were it not for the constant intercession of his son, the father would not find it in his own heart to forgive and heal. When I read that statement first, that statement that he even sent his son to be the one between, I wept like a child. I wept like a child, and many times have I wept like a child. Because I have thought that he sent his son to be the one between. Because there needed to be one between. 
You see, because because implicitly, sort of subliminally, I have related. I was relating to God as a you know. Why, why was I weeping? I was weeping because I recognized that I had done God injustice by thinking of God as a person where there was you know that you could only deal with God, you know, through the one between. So. You know, there there's more to be said about this, of course, because we're going into a big theological sort of, you know, cloud. But but I, I'm just just covering one, covering, you know, the notion of the one between and what function that one between should have. Well, I think I just want to repeat a couple of things for for our recording that you're saying that people make they make decisions with their emotions and then they find a reason for it afterwards and that there is an, a certain appeal to the image of the mother. you know. And of course there is a risk in our part too to make God gendered the way we do, that God is a man. You know, and there is a you know what happened to the to the female. You know, that's that part of it. So I, I'm privileged to have a daughter who is trying to fix that problem in in, <laughs> in Christian theology. We'll see how it goes. I think she will make a difference. <clears throat> but anyway, so so you know the notion of the one between, not for that reason. Whatever reason you make for having one between, it isn't the reason that you could not go to the Father, as it were. Did you have a comment there, uh, Rad? No. Okay. So, and here is a, a text that uh, that uh, that uh, Graham Maxwell used many times on 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 that topic, on where Jesus is saying in his farewell address in the Gospel of John, "On that day, you will ask in my name. I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf." So, what is he saying? I do not say that I will be the one between. For the Father himself loves you. And here you have to translate the text differently. I have fixed the translation here because this is a Hebraic thought expressed in Greek. So it, it turns the logic on its head. Does the Father love you because you love him? Does, do you love him because he loves you? Is, is your love a result of God's love? Isn't it? See, the way it is translated here, it is like... You know, God's love for us is because we have loved him, but, but you have to do it the other way. The Father himself loves you with the result that you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. See, that's, that's the way it is. Anyway, the one between. So <clears throat> Now, <clears throat> what we're seeing then in the last few minutes here is that we're seeing a resurgence of the, notion, of the role of the virgin as a as a conspicuous religious phenomenon in the in the in the last uh, half of the twentieth century and in early into our our time, uh, you have the popes have greatly contributed to to raising the prestige, to raising awareness and acceptance of the mother here in Poland, uh, on this slide, here in in Lourdes in France, uh, where you had an apparition of Mary. In, uh, in, 19, in 1858, four years after the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, Mary appears to Bernadette Subiru, and she says to Bernadette Subiru, I am the Immaculate Conception. So you have a sort of, you know, bolstering of the authority of the Vatican 
with Mary herself weighing in a few years later. I am the Immaculate Conception. This is one of the favorite pilgrim sites in, in Europe today. And <clears throat> my brother, he, he and his wife, they, they actually showed up in Fatima this week. <laughs> They've been there. He sent me an email from Fatima. And I told him, I'm so envious of you. I've never been there. I always wanted to go. <laughs> but here are these three children in Fatima in 1917. And again, <clears throat> you know, strange may be to many of us, but this is a, a very uh, prestigious uh, pilgrim destination today. And here is one of the sisters, uh, one of the, uh, of the children who is not, uh, now a grown-up in 2005, meeting with, with the Pope just before she died. So, uh, so <clears throat> what is the meaning of this? And these questions we will take up uh, next time, and we will broaden this much, much beyond these, this kind of, uh, what you might say, quite esoteric interest in, in, in specific Roman Catholic things. And, it, and that will, what we do next time will be my stepping stone for moving into the Sabbath. The topic next time will relate to the topic of the Sabbath in a strange way. I promise that. So these are, que these are questions. Uh, uh, I think Nichols' last question is particularly, particularly apt. Is it just another sign of the decadence of Western civilization? The final betrayal before the catastrophe of, West, of the West's great gift of rationality. You know, that's the way he frames it. It's quite fascinating. And, and he puts many other things into that basket, including the prospect that America is also on the road to Fatima. That prospect. That's where we will end on this. We'll take this topic in the end. Okay, time is up. Thank you very much.